She's not here, so don't tell her I said that. I made a note. <laughs> well, you, blamed, you blamed everything on Suzanne. I couldn't help but... Wait, I was just complimenting her, Patricia. God, would you straighten out that head of yours, please? I just gave my wife a huge compliment. I couldn't help but notice that Albert Einstein, Isaac Newton, Copernicus, <laughs> Galileo was not mentioned in your prayer. <laughs> just thought I'd mention it. You put in some heathen, but you didn't put in some good people. Oh God. So, Fred, are you taking this a little bit personally because the scientists aren't here? <laughs> I am. I don't. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. I'm glad for our humor. Okay, um, let's start. Let's. Um, I think we're at the end of East Coker, so if you can, if you can look at the end of East Coker, the fifth section. Remember, in Bert Norton, Elliot was dealing with um, a steel point. This this thing that's with us that we don't see and I've tried to help um, as much as I can um, I say that knowing there's no way to replace a poet the, the words are too great by the way before we go go any farther I want to say this just because I you I've had you guys on my mind and I won't remember once we get going in class Suzanne and I got a copy of a movie that we saw probably 20 25 30 years ago called love among the ruins it's um, with Catherine Hepburn and Lawrence Olivier when they're at the end of their lives. It's a, it's just a, probably one of the most perfect tender movies I've ever seen. And I offer it for those of you who have anything left of the romantic in you, and I think most of you do in some ways. It's a touching tale um, of marriage or love among the ruins. Um, it, it's just an extraordinary tale. Anyway, it's it's out on a release, and they've read um, what do you call it? Reformatted or rematted it? Something, whatever they say that, because they came out with a copy five or ten years ago that was really fuzzy, and I was sorry because we wanted that forever and couldn't get a copy, but it came out. It's available on Amazon. It's called Love Among the Ruins. It is a wonderful, beautiful, beautiful movie, special movie. And I offer it to you now. I'm thinking about it because um, of my comment about Eliot. There's no way to replace poets. That what they do with language, I think, keeps us close to the face of God. That they keep us close to something that the world pulls us away from. And um, throughout this movie, Lawrence Olivier, who's a lawyer, what? Dead? Wait, by it. Um, just let me take a minute. Do all of you recognize this person who's just joined <laughs> us here down in the lower right-hand corner? No, I don't. <laughs> this stranger? <laughs> anyway. Hello, all. Hello, hello. Debbie, I just want you to know I do not have enough coals in my house to heap on that head of yours, but if I... <laughs> but, well, that's uh, okay. That's okay, Bob. Bob. Yeah. Um... The reason you can't see me is I've lost electricity. Oh, wow, I see. We can see part of your face, but... Um, anyway. That's just the reflection, so um, I'm going to go see if I can figure out. Okay, okay. There you are. Join us. There you are. But anyway, whatever happens, stay with us. You don't need electricity. 
What you need is this. You, we, you do not leave, just leave that electricity go and stay with us. Anyway, this is the last of the quartets. Remember in Burnt Norton, he, he was dealing with this image of a, of a still point, which is, I think, an, a symbol, an image, a real, it's a real thing. But it represents a, that point at which all of us long for something more in the world. We, we, we want it. We live our lives hoping for it. And so often we let our preoccupations with the things of the world get in the way. And it sort of gets snuffed out. But it's there. In East Coker, he's, he's picking up the same thing but from another perspective. And he's dealing with it in terms of things coming into being and passing away. There was a time when we didn't exist. Our parents existed. We weren't even here. If anybody can believe it, Debbie was a speck in her mother and father's eye. <laughs> or, or a gleam, Mark. not a speck, a gleam. <laughs> okay, a gleam. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 can, I can give testimony to Devil Devi's correction because I can remember probably six or seven years ago when we were talking about something and it had to do with one of the, I think one of the manipulative women or one, one of the women in the reading we were doing it and, my, and I made the comment, what do you do with women like this? And Debbie did not miss a beat. Did not miss, she said, of, of course, you love them. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. And you call yourself a master of literature. That's <laughs> Sorry, right. Sorry, no, I do not. No, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. Anyway, poets do things with words that that help us to move closer to that point. And in East Coker, Elliot's picking up the theme that he introduced in Bert Norton, and he's carrying it forward. But in this image of things coming into being and passing away, and it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful image once again because if we just stay with things coming and passing, dung, dirt, roads, homes, whatever, whatever it is that comes in, we ourselves, it's as if we're here and gone. So in one sense, it's the greatest evidence that there's nothing here. It's just illusory. All things pass. We're here and gone. But he uses it as a, once again a way of showing it that there is something there around which these seasons circle. They're cyclical. They come to be, they pass away, they come into existence, they pass away. The pagans lived in that cyclical world. In fact, they even came up with the notion of transmigration of souls, re um, recycle, rebirth and death of souls, because it corresponded to their actual experience of time. Things come into being, they pass away. Things come into being, and pass away. We know that because for all these years we live, fall comes, followed by winter, um, spring, summer, again and again and again. Around what do they rotate? How are they here? There's some, in fact, the, the last quartet we get to, to me, is one of the most beautiful poems of the 20th century because he's going to say, in midwinter, there is this spring, this season out of season. It's an image that there's always something there during fall, winter, spring, summer that holds on to the other seasons, that it reminds us that something there. So through the brilliance of his mind, the, the profundity because of his reading of this poetic tradition, he, he knew it all, he could use these images and he could use this language to, to help give us an image of this thing 
that's at the center of our souls that we long for and that sadly we too often let it get away from us okay so the last section of um, of East Coker um, so here I am in the middle of the way having had 20 years 20 lar years largely wasted the years of um, L'entre du Gares. It's between the two wars. Remember that Don, you, most of you should, that your, your head should be ringing right now. Um, you've all read the Divine Comedy. We've done it together. And you know the Divine Comedy Don, um, starts with Dante saying, in the middle of my life, in a woods, in a dark way, I had lost my way. All of us, all of us come to a point in the middle of our lives where we say, I've been in a dark wood. i I've wasted too much of my life. The scripture we're going to talk about tonight is going to go directly, directly to this theme. Christ is going to be warning us. Pretty, pretty severe warnings. Because he's addressing an audience that's taken what he's asked too lightly. Just too lightly. So Eliot's picking up this, this image. And remember, we, we already encountered it um, in that image when he says... Um, in a dark wood that he'd begun. Um, here he's picking it up. So he's connecting himself with Dante, but he's also connecting himself with us in our lives and that sense that we have when we reach some kind of maturity and we realize we've wasted too much. So section five. So here I am in the middle way, having had 20 years, 20 years largely wasted, the years of L'Entre du Gares trying to learn to use words, and every attempt is a wholly new start and a different kind of failure, because one has only learnt to get the better of words for the thing one no longer has to say, or the way in which one is no longer disposed to say it. And so each venture is a new beginning arrayed on the inarticulate with shabby equipment always deteriorating in the general mess of imprecision of feeling, undisciplined squads of emotion, and what there is to conquer by strength and submission has already been discovered once or twice or several times by men whom one cannot hope to emulate. But there's no competition, there's only the fight to recover what has been lost and found and lost again and again, and now under conditions that seem unpropitious. But perhaps neither gain nor loss. For us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. I'm going to mute you guys. There's a noise. Just remember that any time you guys want, just jump in, okay? <clears throat> Home is where one starts from. As we go older, the world becomes stranger, the pattern more complicated of dead and living. Not the intense moment isolated with no before and after, but a lifetime burning in every moment and not for the lifetime of one man only, but of old stones that cannot be deciphered. There is a time for the evening under starlight, a time for the evening under lamplight, the evening with the photograph album. Love is most nearly itself when here and now cease to matter.
old men ought to be explorers here and there does not matter we must be still remember the the puns on still it's a noun and an adverb um, we must be still and still moving into another intensity for a further union a deeper communion through the dark cold and the empty desolation the wave cry the wind cry the vast waters of the petrel and the porpoise in my end is my beginning so next week we'll start dry salvages and it once again like Burt Norton and um, East Coker it refers to an actual place with an actual history and we'll start there um, the opening lines are I do not know much about gods but I think that the river is a strong brown god sullen untamed and intractable patient to some degree at first recognized as a frontier useful untrustworthy as a conveyor of commerce it's the way we use nature and abuse it the way we use nature badly then only a problem confronting the builder of bridges the problem once solved the brown god is almost forgotten by the dwellers in cities he'll go on um, that opening line signal the theme that so often we use our technical powers to master nature I'm hoping that all of you remember Homer because in the Odyssey we saw when the Phaeacians thought they mastered nature it's and that's uh, I mean I I don't want to get going on this but but I don't want to lose the opening here we live in an advanced technological age we pride ourselves in being the most technologically technologically advanced people historically nobody's ever been able to do and it leaves us with a sense that we've conquered nature that we can create these virtual worlds and use them to replace nature except if you remember Homer when the Phaeacians thought they conquered nature with their technology their ships and everything they did with their minds remember what happened Neptune planted a mountain on them it was nature's way of reasserting itself I remember when we did that remember Jurassic Park and movies like that where people who fool around thinking they can use their knowledge to master nature are going to suffer sometimes catastrophic effects so that nature will come back hard on us because nature's God's creation it's where he is it's where his laws are um, are we careful of nature or do we use our knowledge thinking we can become more self-sufficient and do whatever we want and take nature for granted so he's going to pick that theme up in in dry savages okay okay <clears throat> let's start I've got some really important questions um, I want to I want to read off the questions that I asked last week before we started Matthew because as you know from the way I'm presenting it which I think is the way any believer should present any of the Gospels um, it's the questions that if you if you type the notes and you have them for in front of you you'll just you'll see that I'm reading from them um, scripture gives us God's word directly and I'll I'm gonna come back to that again and again and again because I don't think I can stress it enough how well do we read scripture and I'm saying that really deeply honestly um, how well do we read scripture um, 
do we really understand when we read scripture that we're hearing God, that he's present before us? I can't put it more strongly than that. Or do we read it and just take it for granted and go over it? Um, when we say our prayers, let's say to Mary, do we picture your image, imagine, Mary right in front of us? So she's hearing us. She's, it's not, she's not at a distance. She's not off somewhere. For anybody of faith, she's right next to us. If we're praying to her, she's like a friend. When we read scripture, do we read it understanding that God's speaking to us? Are we next to him? Do we hear him that way? Do we take serious, um, scripture that seriously? So, um, Scripture, from our perspective, from our faith, is a miracle. It's the living word of God being given to us now. So when we're at Mass and we hear it, I mean, it, to me it's just a mistake not to hear it without thinking God is present right there. There's two words in Scripture, I mean, in, sorry, in the liturgy. There's the written word and the, the word of the liturgy. They're two words, but they're the, they're the same. Spoken word is the living word of God. The Eucharist is his living presence. Do we hear Scripture that way? Or have we gotten into an intellectual frame of mind, along with most people in the world, and we read Scripture and keep him in our heads, as if God's not present? So my first question, I, I'm, so I'm asking everybody to hold on to these questions when we go through Matthew. We're not reading literature right now. I mean, we're, we're going out on a limb, with me, certainly, um, to a place we've not been before. We're not reading literature. Some people can treat Scripture as literature. It is. But it happens to be the literature of God speaking to us. How well do we read? Second question, has the veil fallen over our faith? Remember St. Paul in his writing says that the veil has fallen over the Jews. He has to say that with some grief. He was Jewish. He, he was a Pharisee. He, he belonged to the tribe. He was among the chosen of God. Um, and he says of his own people in some grief, like people today who go off and live their lives the way they want, a veil has fallen over the Jews. My question to us, and it's a serious one again, has the veil fallen over Christianity? I happen to believe it has, so I'm just going to be up front. Um, that the veil has fallen over Christianity, that in lots of ways we go through the motions exactly the way the Jews do. So the reading of Scripture today, I hope tonight again, will be a little bit unsettling. I hope People will read this, and I won't be sorry if, if all of us are a little bit shaken. Third question, how strong is our faith? Matthew, remember over and over and over again, people come up to Christ, and it's only because of their faith that they're healed. And over and over again, and he, and he gets increasingly irritated about it. He gets irritated with his disciples. He said, how long do I have to put up with you? Um and tells them um, if their faith were strong, they could move a mountain, they could heal that fig tree. So I'm asking it pretty seriously, how strong is our faith? Are we going through the motions, going to Mass, being good Christians, <laughs> I'm putting quotes around that, being good Christians, when our faith is half dead? Do we really believe that faith can heal us? And I'm speaking to any of you who happen to feel you're 
in sin, and assuming like most of us do, I certainly do, um, is our faith strong enough that we believe that Christ can heal us and that without him we won't be healed, whatever our sins are? Four, do we take the kingdom as seriously as Christ intends us to? Over and over and over again, he talks about this kingdom, all the parables he gives of what this kingdom is, and he very often sets it against um, um, people who are doing something to avoid it. They're all off in their world, doing what they could. He keeps talking about stewards, you know, the stewards who are who are put in charge. By the way, and I hope it's clear, they're the chosen people. They're the ones God called out as tenants to take care of his word, his world. And they're all off doing other things. They're all off too busy with other things. And you know that when the prophets come, they hate them. They have, they resent them, they don't like. They say things to them that they don't want to hear. So um, over and over again, he keeps giving this image of, of the kingdom, um, hoping that he will help people not give in to what the world gives in and sort of giving it away. Um, fifth question, do we take hell as seriously as we should? And I, you know that last week I tried to stress that a lot. Because we live in a world that doesn't believe in God, which means it doesn't believe in evil or hell. So it's easy, we're encouraged all the time not to believe such dark things or glorious things. Um, over and over and over again, I mean, pe people who want to make Jesus this nice guy, that's an Aryan, an Aryan heresy. They make him almost completely human. He's a buddy. He's their friend. Well, here's a friend who s sends sometimes believers to hell because he says, people are going to cry out, Christ, Christ, Christ. And he's going to say, I don't know you. Get away from me. Lots of people are going to say, Christ, Christ. And he's going to dismiss them. Over and over and over again, we, we covered a lot of those passages already, he, he keeps the, repeating these parables in which the outcome is sending somebody into the darkness where they're going to gnash their teeth and cry out. Um, so do we take hell as seriously as we could? If this is the word of God, and I'm claiming it is, are we taking it seriously? Do we understand that we put our lives in jeopardy and, and our eternal lives because we let the things of the world become more important to us than God? Our convenience, our procreation, our work, whatever it is we do. Christ never asks us to stop doing those things, but he's pretty clear in saying, don't let those things become greater than God. And when he says that, he's almost always referring to his father because God already set out the commandments. My final question is can we find example of events that make Christ's three temptations understandable? You know that I've I've been pressing this on you and I'm going to give it real importance tonight. Remember that Matthew started the the Christ ministry started with the temptations. That doesn't happen in the other three gospels, but it does in Matthew. I didn't pick it for that reason, but it's here and we've got to deal with it. It's in our text, and you know, you know how seriously I take text. His ministry starts there. It's the three temptations. At the end, of the, at the end when I go over the, the remaining chapters, I'm going to come back to the question, and I'm going to ask it this way. 
In dealing with those three temptations, Christ is showing us exactly what he's going to face. We've covered that, I think, I thought pretty thoroughly. But we're going to come back to it again because I hope we'll cover it even more thoroughly by relating it to our own lives. I'm going to make the claim that there's not an event in the gospel in which people are described doing something where they're not facing one of those three temptations. So either we're really seeing them as they are or we're not. Every event, they're going to be dealing with one of those three temptations. And in, in some ways, I think they're all interrelated, but we can focus on the three of them. So that's a major question. Um, can we see what happens in Matthew in light of the temptations that Christ faces and that he's expecting us to face in our daily lives? Are we aware of it? Do we face them? So those are the opening questions. Um, let me, if you have a question, let me stop. I, um, I, I've just got, a, these are all background. I mean, we're reviewing what we've done, but are, are those questions clear? Anybody have a question about any of those? I hope they're stark. I mean them to be stark. I, 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 for all of us, I, I hope you know that I'm, in, I'm at the center of this group. So I ask them for all of us. Any questions? Okay, let's go on. Um, for the last couple of weeks, I've been stressing, trying to give some emphasis to um, the approaches to modern readings of Scripture because um, so many of the ways that we approach Scripture today are the result of movements that began several hundred years ago. We've gone through this. I, I don't want to go into it in depth, but we've touched on it. Um, remember with the Copernican Revolution and the, and the Protestant Revolution um, back in the 16th century, um, a whole new way of looking at the world was introduced into the West. Um, the Copernican Revolution showed us that um, our, our model of the universe was wrong that the earth was not at the center of the universe, the sun was. We've corrected that since then. But it, it helped us understand that we'd seen things in error, and the assumption that was put into place then was that science could correct our ways of understanding things. So it called into question everything and the authority on which things were based, including the authority of the church. Um, everything had been wrong. So people doubted everything, including the church and including scripture. Strangely, roughly at the same time, the Protestant Reformation began. And it was then, we've gone through this before, the major theologians, the reformers, um, um, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli were among them, all questioned the Catholic Church and said that it was corrupt, it needed reforming, and... I believe mistakenly what they did was um, correct the doctrines. The doctrines were in an error. The error was in people the way it has always been true in the church. I mean, people, the church has never been free of corruptions, not from the beginning, not with Peter, not in all the ages from, if, we, if you go back to Chaucer or Shakespeare, but Chaucer particularly, you know that the priests and bishops and Dante, his hell was full of bishops and priests, so... It's not like the church has ever been pure. It's not. 
the church is for sinners and I hope we take some comfort in that because Christ said I came for sinners he likened himself to a physician he didn't come for people who didn't need healing he came for us but um, one of the effects of the Reformation teaching was to approach scripture entirely through a private faith we experienced that in Hamlet We've, we've done, I just think we've done amazing things. I'm just shocked when I think about what we've done. Just, it blows me over. Hamlet's treatment, or Shakespeare's treatment of that is Hamlet. All's well that ends well. Um, people tend to read scripture privately, and they can make it whatever they want. So it's introduced into Christianity is this element of subjectivism, that one's personal response to things is greater than anything objectively true. If I say it's this way, it's this way. And I will resent anybody who says differently. The problem with that is, um, is that there is something objectively true that came into the world. His name was Christ. He was a God. He was both. He introduced the sacraments, so the church has carried those on. But the church in the modern world is surrounded by a world that's characterized by its subjectivity. It's making its own private beliefs more important than truth. And the other thing that was introduced into the world through um, the Reformation was a quality of relativism. The truth, is, the truth is relative between one person and another. It's why the, the, the Protestant church keeps fragmenting, because one person will say this is the truth, and another person will say this is the truth. The, the oddity is even if, even if they contradict each other, they won't say there's something wrong, They'll just keep on fragmenting, so the church continues to fragment into parts. Um, the Catholic Church says, no, there is an objective truth, and, and we're related to it subjectively, each privately, but in a way that respects the objectivity of that thing, the kingdom with Christ. And at the same time, in the Copernican Revolution, because of the, the belief that science could give us answers to all things, there was this um, great trust in scientific ways of approaching the world. And two things came into prominence then that are still with us. One is the belief that matter is the only thing that's real. That's become more and more important over time, even though there are lots of scientists who distance themselves from that belief. That only matter is real, and if it is, there's, no, there's nothing else out there. There's no kingdom. There's no miracles. Things like that don't exist. Man doesn't have free will. Those are some of the things that have come with that in Darwin and Freud and Marx and um, and um, and mathematics because since the modern sciences since that time or always have been based on mathematics there's a tendency to look at the world through abstractions because as you know math, math is a language just like our words but it, um, it it presents to us a world in terms of quantities or or powers or whatever category we use but but it represents a world of abstraction removed from concrete realities and it's a level of concrete realities that miracles take place not an abstraction so that the modern world um, through the sciences and modern philosophy the modern philosophy that began with Descartes and uh, Kant took the position that what's real are not the things that we know through our minds and senses, but ideas. 
So that the modern world has been encouraged to live in ideas removed from concrete reality. I hope everybody's seen the importance of that because if you're at a remove and at a level of abstraction removed from concrete realities, we're actually removed from the body in its concrete nature and reality as it is. It's the place where miracles take place. All of those things have influenced the way we read scripture. So it's easier for people to read scripture in abstractions or removed um, and to make it what they will. So let me let me stop with that one. I mean, one of the sort of wonderful things that we've done together is when we read Chesterton's Orthodoxy, we were reading, I think, probably one of the one of the greatest defenses of the rationality of the world, how the resources of rationality in our natural order. Um, Chesterton wasn't speaking as a Catholic, or I mean, he was just using his powers of reason to reveal the world to us and the amazing sources of rationality um, that were under attack by all these great men, because he took on all the great thinkers at his time, who were coming into line with the sciences and reading the world through them. And Chester was showing that there's all these other things going on um, and, and making us realize that the world is an amazing and rational place and, and in so many ways it's compatible with Christianity. Remember his, his premise was that he, everything that he wrote was in accord with the Apostles' Creed, even though he said almost nothing explicitly religious in that book. So it's one of the most amazing books, in the, I think, in the 20th century um, in that sense. So that's been our background, that, that we have to be aware that when we approach Scripture, we're approaching it in a world that, that has these tendencies. And it's important to be aware of them, at least to be on guard, and so that we can answer them. We don't have to blow up and say, white, black. You know, Chesterton has an amazing power to answer the disorders of the world without turning it into a black and white place. He's showing that reason is natural to man, that it's inherent. The Catholic Church, I think, is the only institution that protects both reason and faith, so that we have some way of using our powers of reason to go to a world that makes no place for them. So those were some of the principles that we set out, we've been talking about in our approaches to Matthew since we started. That's all just by way of review. The most important thing beneath all of these, the one thing that I want to underscore is that we could not, we could not get to Christ without Scripture. It's absolutely essential. It's at the heart of our faith. The Protestant world is right on in that. The trouble is they make it sola Scripture. They, they disconnect it from tradition when we know that tradition was already alive and ongoing when the Gospels were written. They go together. They shouldn't be separated. But the point I want to stress here tonight, again, because we're reading the Gospel, is um, the Bible is absolutely essential to our faith. Without it, we couldn't. We couldn't. We'd have no way of coming to Christ. That our understanding of the Bible is God speaks those words to us. They're spoken directly to us as his way of trying to help us attain our salvation. We couldn't do it on our own. He's giving us help. 
That's why scripture is so important. So it's very, very important how we approach scripture. What's the spirit with which we approach it? Because we're surrounded by temptations every, everywhere, from the Protestant world, from the intellectual world. Um, let me stop there. Any questions before we take a look at scripture, at Matthew itself? These are just sort of background things. Mark, you've got that big side. I should, I should. After all these years, I should know better. I should know better than even ask you a question. But you've got something let's on your just, face. Come on. Let's just move on, Bob. Okay. <laughs> okay. No No. No questions here. Oh God. Nope. Okay. Let's. Let's go. Let's tackle. The major concerns, the, um, we started last week in my offering what um, I believe, I think the church teaches, are um, the reasons for um, Christ coming into the world. Why did he come? I'm going to offer a list of reasons here, okay? Why did Christ come? The principal reason he came, we've gone through this, well, the greater majority of works that we've read, certainly Thomas and um, Boethius. Christ came in order to answer an injustice we committed against his father. We sinned against him. We committed an injustice. There was no way for a God to give satisfaction for that because a man committed the injustice. And there was no way for a man because a man committed against a God. The only way that original sin could be answered, atoned for, was if a God took on the nature of a man. Christ did that to come to answer an injustice and because um, his father so loved the world, so loved us, that he sent him to make that atonement possible. So it's an um, his coming is an expression of his father's love for us and it's an answer to an injustice we can't answer on our own. So he came to help us re return to God. Um, to open ourselves to the love that he offers. He came for sinners. These are all quotes from Matthew. Matthew, he came for sinners. He came for the house of Israel. And I want to go through some of these right now because I don't want to, I don't want to, um, I don't want to leave this stuff in abstractions because um, often we can, we can read these things and, um, and not read them closely. He came principally, as he said initially in his ministry, for the house of Israel. He came for his chosen people, the, the people that God had chosen out, picked out. So let's, let's start. Let's turn to a couple of passages just to make this concrete. So in chapter 8, section 11. If I can find this. Um, I hope I've got the... Um, Chapter 8. The centurion comes to ask him to heal um, his servant. Um, and remember, he's used to having authority, and Christ is going to go, and he says, no, don't. If you do it, I'll have faith. Um, Christ is amazed. This is a centurion. This is a Roman. This is not a Jew. This is not a Jew. Christ is amazed at this man. This is a man who has power and authority, and he comes to him knowing he can't do anything to help his servant. 
I mean, it's an expression of his love. He's a, he's a centurion. He's in charge of a hundred men. He's a man of power and authority. This man, despite his power and authority, comes to Christ in faith and asks Christ to do something he can't. And Christ's response is amazing, telling. He says, this is about 8.10 or so, Truly I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west, sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. That is, the people for whom he came will be cast out. came for them. But they don't have this faith. They've lost it. They're living under a veil. I mean, it's one of the reasons I put the question about the veil earlier. Have we come under that veil? Are we going through the motions in our faith? Turn to um, Act, or chapter 10, line 5. Um, um, Christ says, chapter 10, 5, these 12 Jesus sent out, this is when he first commissions his disciples, the very outset um, when he's chosen them. He gathers them together to give them their commission. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town to the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and preach as you go saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He goes on and on and on. He came for God's chosen people, the people that God loved. And I reminded you of that passage from Paul because Paul says King, um, salvation waits on the Jews. These are God chosen. Christ came for them. Go to um, 21, chapter 21. I'm just picking out some things that touch on this theme. Um, 21, line 33 or so. Um, he gives another parable. He's trying to describe the kingdom again and again. He keeps... <laughs> I, hope I'm, I hope I'm not stepping out of line here. I mean, it, it's hard for me to read these without thinking of how muddy-headed and sort of dull-headed the disciples are. I mean, he has to keep giving parables again and again and again and again. It's a pretty good clear indication of that he's, he's, he's trying to help them understand something that they don't understand very well. And he's, he has to, it's amazing what he does. He comes at it from a great variety of perspectives so that no matter where you are in the world, you should be able to understand what he's teaching because he comes at it from so, so many different ways. He says, <clears throat> there was a householder who planned a vineyard, set a hedge around it, um, he puts his tenants in charge of it to bear fruit. Um, and then he says, um, And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants. Afterwards, they sent his son, go down. But when the tenants saw his son, they said, This is the heir, let's kill him. And they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will they do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits. What's amazing to, to me about this is, even if the Jews didn't see it initially, he chose them out. But in this parable, he puts the, the identity of the chosen people in terms of a vineyard. 
because at the center of this vineyard will be wine. So they even had, a, you know, a year before the crucifixion when they're in the temple in Copernican and Christ does, has the bread of life discourse, it's a year before the, his crucifixion when he's in that temple in, in uh, Copernican where he gives that discourse and he says, unless you eat of this bread, unless you drink of this wine, that's a command, unless you do that, you will have no part of me. And remember the description of the disciples is they began to murmur and lots of the disciples left because in, in from their traditions it was not allowed for them to drink blood. So it horrified them to have this man that they've been following say, eat my body and drink my blood. But it's interesting here in this parable they frames it in terms of a vineyard. So the chosen people were given this vineyard to take care of and they didn't. But his response to them is anger. Um, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their season. So I'm going to ask again, are we taking care of those fruits? Are we just sitting in mass? Are we doing what he asked? There's a vineyard that um, he put the chosen people in charge of. Go to um, 22, 114. He likens the kingdom again to a king who gives a marriage feast. And remember, he sends out um, invitations to the those who have already received them. They didn't come, so he says, go out into the highways and bring invitations. Prostitutes, whores, whoever. So the chosen people, the ones who were invited... Refused to come, didn't come. They were too busy. God bless, just too busy, too busy doing other things. So he says, bring everybody. So they go out and they bring all the other people in who were not invited, and they're at the wedding fist, and then this happens. Um, um, this is 2211. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment, and he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. There men will weep and gnash their teeth, for many are called but fewer children. Now, I want to stop for a minute because I'm, I'm not, you know, we're so used to hearing these things and I'm, I don't know how much any of us thinks and if, if we're just going over things that you already know, just be patient with me for a while. But I, I don't want to assume these things. Why did, so, the chosen ones... The ones that were given the invitation didn't show. He opened it up to those outside. But among those comes somebody who's not among them. But he, he, do, he doesn't just make a place for him. He takes him and throws him out into the darkness where people will grind their teeth and gnash. And why, does he, why does he condemn this man? What's wrong here? Does anybody want to offer? By the way, Fred and Francis, I, I, we lost your picture. Can, are, can you guys hear us? Are, you, are we still in touch? Oh, good, good. Can't, I can't hear you, but I just, but so you guys are here. Okay. We're here. Good. Anybody want to offer any thoughts? Why does he toss this one guy out because of his wedding garment? Seems awfully cruel. 
or this is God. Seems like an I awful. A, I think it's supposed to be about preparation, and that he did not come prepared, even though he was asked at the last minute. It's it's not about the garment. It's it's a, it is your soul prepared to receive Christ, and if at the last minute, you know. Jesus comes down from heaven, right? End of the world. Time to go. Are you ready? And most of us won't be. So, speak for yourself. Anybody? Anybody that's, else? That's a pretty good presumption there. On your oh, part. Mark. God, I'm not. I'm not going to take it up with you right now. Anybody else? Anybody else? Fred, did you have a? Mark, go ahead. I would just add to what Mark said. I think it was commitment as well. I mean, he, he kind of came to the feast, but he wasn't really committed to it. He wasn't, he wasn't prepared, but nor was he mentally committed to the purpose of the event. Yeah. I he, think it's not only preparedness, but I think it's also, are you truly committed? I mean, you know, people can make, you know, can talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I, I agree with Mark, but I think also it was about commitment. Yeah, yeah. Anybody else? I, I would just say that um, I, I agree with what has been said, but I, I not just mentally committed, but emotionally committed. I think there's a commitment of the heart yeah. that... Um, um, that for you know, for some of us is really hard. I mean, it, it it really is. You can you can say all the right words and do all the right things, but if if your heart's not there, um, uh, you're going to be cast out because yeah. your heart isn't there. Yeah, yeah. I would I would just ask everybody to gather those things together, but I would I would fall more heavily on what um, this this stranger among us just said. <laughs> that's that's only one of the number of colds that are coming your way, Deborah. <laughs> anyway, I think Debbie's I think Debbie's right on. I, I um, it just seems the garment is everything. Um, it, I mean, what Christ is doing is making a clear distinction between appearance and reality that you can have on. You can seem to be okay outside, but what's going on is everything. I think what's going on here is has to do with the heart and particularly humility and gratitude. If the other people are away because they you know they're busy with other things, they're they were given an invitation to the wedding. This is this is a marriage between the bride and the groom and Christ and his church. This is Christ and the bride, which is us. Are we are we before him in gratitude and thanksgiving? Do we stand in humility open to what he's offering? So I, I think it's a combination of all of what you said, but, but I would certainly stress, um, come with Debbie and put the stress there in the heart that, that what's really at issue is whether this person is here. You know, lots of people, I mean, you've all said it, lots of people show up at events dressed and cool and, you know, wanting to make their show. And that's not what's going on here. This is the Eucharist and it's Christ offering himself. And the question is whether one comes to that in humility at Thanksgiving. Turn to 2229. <clears throat> hmm. 
again, we're talking about the house of Israel, that Christ came for, and what's amazing is that we're watching him continuously find himself dealing with people um, who call forth from him a condemnation exactly where his love is greatest um, for his father is chosen um, and he's constantly having to do something more it'll 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 come to another thing in a minute but um, here on on uh, on 22 29 um, <clears throat> these are the Sadducees um, testing Christ on the resurrection. Remember, they give the example of the um, um, the brother who died and left his wife, and the law was that the brother would marry her, and it goes on seven times, and they say, who's going to be married to her in the kingdom? And he says, nobody, because there's no marriages. And then he says, this is so interesting. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. There it is. All of this, just hold on to this. Don't, don't lose sight of this. All of this depends on their reading of scriptures. How well did they read? And clearly he's condemning them because they didn't read well. I mean, my focus from the beginning is, you know that since we started the Iliad. How well do we read what's in front of us? Do we really see what's there? Over and over and over again, we've done that with every work we've read. The Iliad, the Odyssey, Shakespeare, boy, you can go anywhere. Dostoevsky, Faulkner. All of these people are showing us something in the world. Do we see it? He's saying, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. They've obviously misread. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you? By I keep hearing him saying to me, to all of us, Robert, Suzanne, Bevy, Pat, how are you reading? How are you reading? Do you hear? Do you hear? Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham. Here's where I want to go. I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Is he not God of the dead, but of the living? And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. What is he teaching them again? What's he saying to them? I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. What's he saying here? Are you here? Are you? Debbie, I'm so glad you're back. I hope you know that, even though I'm not going to stop heaping coals on your head, but so glad. you have any thought on that, Debbie? Doc, you have a thought? What's he saying? Which lines are you talking about? The lines that... He just said they've not read well. Um, have you not... So he's dealing with the question of the resurrection. Yeah. Um, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God. He's saying, he's asking them a question. Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the, this is God speaking. He's quoting his father. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Have you not read that? 
He is not God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. What's he teaching here? The, the only thing I can say, Bob, is that um, perhaps what he's saying is that um, I'm not only their God, I am the God of people who are here as well. I am... I, I am, am that am. Every, uh, uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. I am the am. Yeah. That's right. So what's the teaching? Debbie, sorry, I, I'm, so, I'm so glad you're back. I'm glad to hear that voice. Next time I see you, I'm going to crown you. That's how angry I am at you. <laughs> Debbie, fill the, flesh that out, can you? Because I think you're right on. Can, what's the teaching then? I, I don't know if that question is clear enough, but how is that relevant here to what we're talking about? Because, well, I think it's that, that what he's saying is that I am the eternal God, and that it's not just not just the God of before, but the God of now and the God of the future. I, I, I'm, I, I am the eternal God. So, um, you know, it, uh, I, I, they need me, to understand let me, that let me stop, he's not going away. Yeah. I think what he's doing is sharpening the contrast between um, the traditions of the Jews and what the traditions have made of him and holding him in the past as against the God of the living, and exactly as Debbie put it, he is always. The danger here is that, that the chosen people um, have um, contained him in a past and don't see how he's alive now. Their traditions have gotten in the way. So instead of, if I can put it, to, sorry Debbie, if I can sort of build on So instead of staying open in wonder, or like the wedding guest in humility or gratitude and that that God is alive to them now, they, they let the traditions get in the way and have kept them from seeing. And I thought Debbie's way of putting it, it's not only the God of Abraham and Jacob, and I, you know, um, because he, he is their God. But Fred, did, or Francis, did you guys have something? I, just a comment that the, the, the distinction between the dead and the living to me is if you believe in me, you know, you will have eternal life. You will be the living. So I'm the God of the living. If you, if you die, if you are truly dead, then you, you didn't believe in me. You didn't have faith in, in me, the God of everything. And I'm, I'm not your God. I'm the God of the living. Those, yep. those who believe, those who have faith. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I just want to stress the importance of tradition here that I think part of the problem he's dealing with is that they have, they have allowed their traditions to get in the way of doing what you're describing. To, and it's keeping them from seeing God. In fact, that's, you know that's going to, I mean, over and what, I mean, this is, God, it's, it just shakes me to think, you know, when you read any one of the Gospels, reading Matthew now, as you go through it from beginning to end, I just think it's in, it's impossible to read it without seeing the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes going at him all the time, and they're doing it in the name of these traditions. And the 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 horror. I mean, I remember. I'll never forget that moment. It just was a one of my delights for this class. 
I'll never forget the moment when we were doing Oedipus and Mark just barked. I mean, just the shout. <laughs> um, this is what irony means. I mean, it was like a revelation, you know, that, that this black and white when Oedipus came to see himself. The irony here that just builds intensely is, is that all these people are in the presence of God and they're condemning him step by step by step by step by step on the basis of these traditions you know that they're holding as the way to their God and Christ is having to answer these again and again and again um, I'll read once one more and then stop on this go to 23 um, 37 um, so this is this is at the end of oh this is at the end when he he gets he gets so angry at the Pharisees and the Sadducees here he's going woe to you woe to you woe to you I mean it's it's just hard not to hear a crescendo he's just his anger is building woe to you woe to you woe to you you vipers and and he ends thirty seven O Jerusalem Jerusalem killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken and desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God is in their presence this whole time. And their, their self-righteousness about their traditions have gotten in the way. So, um, just to to bring this whole line of thinking to an end, um, he came for the house of Israel. Remember that um, that the it seems to me one of the turning points in this in this drama that we're watching unfold here. Go to go to um, fifteen twenty one. I think it is. Um, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. So he's outside of the Jewish community directly. And behold, remember the, the passage, he says, when he, sent the, when he commissioned the disciples, he said, go to the house of Israel, don't go anywhere else. Here, he's left um, the area and he's gone to Tyre and Sidon. Behold, a Canaanite woman came from the region and she says to Christ, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely possessed by a demon. But he did not answer a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was his mission. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord God, this is stunning. This is both an, for me, this is both an affirmation of God's love for us, how infinite it is, how absolutely infinite it is. If we ever face death, my prayer will be that we will have whatever humility it takes to be like Christ. Um, the humility on both sides is great. He came for the house of Israel be because his father loved us enough to do this when we didn't deserve it. So we have no excuses not to go to the world. Whatever we meet there doesn't matter. We've been asked to do this. We've been asked to bring his love the way he did to us. He's come for the house of Israel. He, he's been disappointed everywhere. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. 
And he answered, It's not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, God, the humility of this woman, her love for her daughter, an extraordinary love for her daughter. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. So she's willing to have crumbs that were meant for the chosen people. And he cures. Then Jesus answered, O woman, great is your faith, and be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So it's, it's always amazing to me to watch Christ, the second person of the Trinity, coming on and take the human form and taking on our nature. So he's not outside of it as God is in his kingdom or, or as the Son. He was outside of us. He knew us, but he enters into us, takes on our nature as a child. He grows into our nature. He faces the temptations. And here, he keep the centurion, a Roman, comes to him. This Canaanite woman comes to him. And the boundless nature of his love, he cannot turn away, will not turn away. Their faith, remember the, the violent bared aways? The, the meaning, we talked about the meaning of that phrase, the violent bared away. That this love is so great that it bears the kingdom away. That it, it overcomes God. There's no way for him to withstand it in the world. The violent bared away, that wonderful passage from Matthew. Fred, go ahead. I just wanted to say, you know, that passage has always disturbed me. That an all-knowing God would come and, be, and selectively choose the house of Israel. And it implies that only when he realized that there were others by virtue of what they said, whether it was the the Samaritan woman or the Canaan woman or whomever, that it was only then that he realized that, you know, he was the God of everyone and not just the house of Israel. And that's that's an oversimplification, I realize, but that, that particular verse has always disturbed me. Yeah. I, I I share the feelings. I, I guess my only my only I mean the only way I would differ from it is I mean I I I feel it as a human the same. What what astonishes me when I put this all together, you know. Um, in fact, we're going to come to it. I'm so glad. I'm, I'm so glad. Honestly, so glad you said that because we're going to come to that passage where Christ says, "You can sin against the Son of Man." That's Him. That's God. You can sin against the sin of man, it'll be pardoned. But to sin against the Holy Spirit, unforgivable. So repeatedly over the course of the gospel, we keep seeing Christ as both man and God, but growing into our human nature and somehow more fully entering into the divine part of him, if I can put it. I mean, I feel like I'm a nervous ground, but I... I, I, I I'm unshakable. I mean, I'm not going to, this, this seems to me, at the very end of his life, he's going, if you can pass, you know, if I can pass this ordeal, or, I mean, he's even ask, asking the Father. There, there are indications throughout that he's both man and God. We should, we should never doubt that. But it's so clear that he's aware that he's in a human form, completely taking on our nature and learning something. 
I mean, that's one of the, what other religion can claim that? That God took on our nature and let his Godhead be taken to a wall to be crucified? He so fully entered into us. So, it, I, think, I just think it's one of the paradoxes of our faith, Fred, that he is completely God and completely man, and, and is completely man. We see him aware of that. Face, why would he have had to face the temptations if he was God only? I mean, everything about the scripture implies that something of his manhood is at the test, under trial. The temptations, they, they wouldn't make sense. Except, and that, in, in fact, the very nature of the temptations in each of the three temptations, we're going to come to this at the end. The very nature of the temptation implies there's this vision between a man and a God. And, and Christ as a man has to face them and say, you don't do this with God. You don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do this. Over and over and over again. So it, it, to me, it, it's, a, it's a reminder of... <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure that I can find the words for this, that, um, that there's something vulnerable in humans and something great in us. We were made in the image of God, and Christ took all of that on, and it, it makes more wonderful everything that he did, more amazing. Barbara, I'm glad you're back. Glad you're back. Let's go on. Um, 12, 12, 50, when the man comes to him and asks what he has to do to enter the kingdom. I hope I've got this right. 12, 50. Oops. Sorry. No, I don't have it. Sorry, I've got the wrong one. But there's that, um, remember that passage where the man comes to him. Oh, it's on, sorry, it's on uh, 19, nineteen seventeen or so. It says, what do I have to do to enter eternal life? And the reason I want to emphasize this, because you know there's that passage where the one man comes to Christ and says, which are the two greatest commandments? And he says the first two. The question there is, which are the two greatest? He doesn't demean the other ones, but the modern world tends to demean them. It, it's, it's the antinomian, the against the law, I think, effect of the Protestant world. Um, the man comes to him and says, what, what do I have to do to um, enter eternal life? And um, why do you ask me? He says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said... The guy says, which? Christ says, you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. He goes on. The young man said to him, all these I have done. And Christ says, if you would be perfect, go sell to the poor. He's saying two things. One is, take the Father's commandment seriously. If you open the book of Catechism for the Catholic Church, you'll see at the center of them the list of the commandments. The Church makes clear we're supposed to spend our life obeying the Father. Would Christ have done anything to abrogate his father's law? Everything he said, I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. What he does not observe are the 600 accretions, the traditions that the Jews added that become so oppressive. 
So throughout this gospel is this effort to bring his love to the law, to obey his father, to carry this on um, while he's teaching. Um, So one of the first things we have to see in this is that he came for his father's chosen people. He's very clear. I've read passages that make that very, very clear. When he says, when he sends the disciples out, he says, "Don't go to these other places. Only to the house of Israel." And then I've read the the, the centurion, the Canaanite woman. He clearly finds himself being drawn beyond. It's a little bit like the moment with the with the wedding feast, when Mary says, um, "You know, do this," and his response is, <laughs> "Woman." My time's not yet. And he does her will. That his great love, God, this is, it it makes so much sense of that passage in Matthew, the violent bared away. He cannot, he doesn't, he never resists love or faith. When people come to him in faith, he does it. It's what gives special meaning, I think, to that wedding garment, that whoever is there, it does not bring that that kind of quality of heart that Bar- or Debbie was talking about earlier. Um, a second reason he comes is that um, to to make the kingdom clear, his father and who he is. Um, um, over and over and over again, he makes clear that he is God. When he speaks, something is done. He's exactly like the father in the fiat. Let there be life, there was life. When the Father spoke, it came to be. There was no delay. He's not a doctor who has to work with a medium, so when he's dealing with a patient, he says, take this medicine. When God speaks, it's done. When somebody came to him in faith and asked for healed, and he healed, it was done. The guy walked away with his eyes. The guy walked away with his ears. The guy walked away with his hand back. Somebody rose from the dead. When he spoke, it was done. That's God speaking, not somebody else. For the Pharisees to let their traditions get in the way is only to show how capable men are in their arrogance of letting their their practices, whatever practices they perform, get in the way of responding to God. So whenever he speaks, it's done. The storms, when he quiets the storms, when he cast out demons, immediately they're gone. They say, they recognize Christ, and they obey him. They, could, they couldn't do that unless they saw he was God. That he was the Son of God. Constantly he keeps, he keeps doing what he can to make clear his Father's kingdom and the nature of his Father. His love, his knowledge, his wisdom. We talked about it last time. I'm not going to go into it too much. Um, I, uh, the notes will give it to you, so I'm not going to read the notes. But he, it's really clear um, that, that he wants people to know that hell is real. For people to play around with hell, to make God whatever they want to make him, like the Pharisees and scribes do, to change him into whatever they want to make him into being. He's really clear in the dangers. Hell is real, that people who don't pay attention to him, there will be effects for them. Um, 
over and over again he keeps calling people to faith um, to believe in him um, his last commission to the to the disciples at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew he says um, go to all the nations baptizing in the name of the Father Son and Holy Spirit teaching them to observe to observe all that I have commanded you he's made it clear that everything they do depends on their faith in him because he says over and over again to the people who come to him in faith you're healed so faith is an essential condition for being saved but he also makes it clear that faith doesn't mean just an act of the head I believe you God it's I'm saved now he's saying do all these things follow the commandments give all you have for the poor do as I've asked because we've re repeatedly seen the dangers for people who don't do that who want to get around it and moreover if, if you if you if you just have been listening to the readings he says over and over and over again how important it is to follow the gospel the scripture he has a one pet where he where at the end of the ministries where he gives the where he describes what will happen through you know through the tribulation once the sun returns in judgment this is act or chapter 24 chapter 24 verse 9 and so Many false prophets will um, arise and lead many astray. Many people are going to come. Because wickedness is multiplied, most men's love will grow cold. So what the church calls lukewarm love, that our hearts grow cold. We don't, we don't love as Christ asks. And I think if I, can, if I can extrapolate, I think fairly to it. We don't suffer the cross that he asks us to. We don't love as you've asked. Um, many have become cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The gospel is absolutely essential to everything that came after him. Because without it, we have no way really of fully understanding him. So let me, let me stop. I'd like to go... Um, I, 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 what I'd like to do is quickly r run over the last sections because we we stopped with uh, I think at 17 or so last week um, I just have a few things to cover but any questions or comments or difficulties to this point in in what we're doing By the way, just so the just to pick up Fred's comment because I, I I was so glad for it. Remember when he this is in twelve about line thirty or so. Um, as a matter of fact, I want to take a second with this. If you can hold off, your, I'm sorry. If you can hold off your questions for a minute, let me let me go back because it's a it's a good point and. And it goes to a gospel reading that we've had recently, and I'm, I'm not sure that people understand it. I'm, I, um, um, <laughs> it's been interesting. I, d I don't know how true this is for you guys. Um, you know how much I love reading. You know how much I love literature. Um, I love the gospel readings. 
we've been listening to the gospel readings for all of our life. I mean, before our conversion, when I grew up in the Orthodox Church, we used to hear it's the same liturgy. It's, it's not the same world, but it's the same liturgy. We've been hearing these things, and I wonder sometimes how fully we hear them, because we get used to hearing them, and I think when we hear them, we just sort of go to sleep on them, because we know them. We've heard them before. We've heard them all our lives. I keep hearing these things the older I get, and I keep being astonished at realizing there are things that I didn't see before, even though I think I saw a good bit before. I'm, I've always just struck and grateful to see that they always speak to us, you know, day after day, year after year. Even though we've heard them before, they continue to speak to us as we change and grow. Here's this parable in chapter 12. Um, when Christ cast out the demons, and the Pharisees and Sadducees criticized him and said he was Satan using Satan to cast out demons. And Christ has this very common, rational, commonsensical answer to the stupidity of what they're saying. And he's using reason the way he does through the entire gospel. He is doing everything he can to use reason to help people understand. He doesn't jump past them with faith. He, he's not um, condescending about reason. Reason is a natural gift from God. He does everything he can to use his powers of reason to help people come to a point of faith. And here, they've made this accusation, says, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this, he can cast out demons. So Christ says, every kingdom, <laughs> hold on, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? What a convicting question. It is so sharp-edged. Therefore they shall be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can you enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. He who does um, not gather with me scatters. Now just stop for a second. Is it clear who the, who the strong man is who is bound up? Is that clear to everybody? You go into a strong man's house, um, you have to bind him first before you plunder. That sounds like a bad thing. And I, I think sometimes it may confuse. Who's the strong man being bound up? Is that clear? Barbara. I want to get you back in or we missed you. Your audio is not on. Sorry. Is your audio on? Oh, sorry, I can't get your audio. Pat, how about you? Who's the strong man? Do you, is your audio on? Are we losing audio here? I don't know who it is. Oh, okay. Good for you. I know. No, I mean, I just... <laughs> I, I've said forever as a teacher, I'm, I'm glad when people offer answers when they're, and I'm glad when they say, I don't know. I just wish most of us would say I don't know more often than we do. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I truly don't know, though. <laughs> Good for you. Bless your heart. Bless that heart of yours. <laughs> Anybody else? Who's the strong man? It's Christ, isn't it? Nope. Debbie, go ahead. I think the strong man is the devil. Yep. Explain yeah. it, Debbie, will you? Because, wait, let me, if I, if, if I can jump in, wait. I think the reason for the confusion is because it sounds like a bad guy is plundering a house. And no, Christ wouldn't do that. But explain right. it. Explain it, Debbie. Go ahead. Well, I mean, if you're going to bind up, up the devil, and therefore then you can take this, you can cast out the demons in this person you're trying to save. Right. And and that's what you're plundering from the devil is because you're saying, okay, no, you can't have this person. I'm taking him back. Yeah. Yep. Right on. The strong man is the devil. You cannot, oh, you, you need somebody greater than he is to reclaim that house, to plunder it. I think people very often get it backwards because it sounds like a bad guy who's doing something bad. But if you think about it, he's talking about casting out demons. How can he do it if he's using Beelzebub? And he's saying he's, he's tying him up or he won't be able to cast him out. Now here's his conclusion, and I want to get to this because it, it touches on Fred's comment earlier. Therefore I tell you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not... <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> Sorry. Will not be forgiven. Whoever says a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Indirectly, he's just condemned every one of the Pharisees and Sadducees because they've said, you're a demon, you're blaspheming God, you can't do this except by using demons. I mean, is there anything more outrageous? And Christ is saying, you've just convicted yourself to hell, basically. I mean, there's nothing playing around with this. You can't make this nice. But I, I want to go to this question. What's he saying? If you, whoever says a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be. He'll be condemned. What's he saying? Barbara? You look so restful, I almost hate <laughs> asking you questions tonight. I need you to say that again. When he says, any, anybody who speaks against the Son, says a word against the Son, will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be. It, it's as if he's saying, this is the one unforgivable sin. And okay. the, the Pharisees and Sadducees have been condemning him, and so um, will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. They've condemned themselves to hell. People in our world don't want to hear this stuff. But uh, my question is, what, what's he saying? Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Well, the only thing that I can think of is that if they're condemning Christ as a person, as a human being, they could probably get by with that. But because he is 
um, the second member of the Trinity, they can't get by with it. And so you've just sealed your fate. Yep. I think so. I think so. It's just another instance of his helping us to see that he's dual nature. He's both man and God and recognizing I mean, what Dante did with that to me is, you know, just sort of amazingly profound. But um, I think what I'd like to do, because I I wanted to summarize the the remaining chapters, but instead of doing that, you know that what happens from this point on is that he prepares his disciples, the disciples, to go into Jerusalem, where he's going to face his death, and he gives all these images of the temple being destroyed and. Um, the Son of Man returning, and um, it's what's called the eschatological discourses. One of the things that I want to say here, um, because we won't have time to talk about it, is it's interesting for me that through the gospel, as he's speaking, he's pretty consistently stern, very serious. He gets impatient with the disciples and um, at times because they don't be they don't seem to be getting it and but as we get closer to the end um, um, he gets he gets very very severe there's that one section where um, sorry let me let's see if I can where this is in um, chapter 23 where he's calling the Pharisees and the scribes to task more severely than ever before, and he goes from from twenty three sixteen on. Woe to you, blind guides! Again and again, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tie the mint and dill. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside. Woe to you, scribes and that's that's not a lowered voice. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you! On top of each other. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outward... Can anybody hear those things without hearing the anger of the Father or God condemning them because everything they're doing is against God? For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. That's why Eliot has that poem that we read where he talks about the bones from... um, um, one of the Gospels, um, the the image of Jerusalem dead and needing in need of revival. Hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within they are full of dead men's bones, or all uncleanness. So you are outwardly appear righteous to men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and integrity. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men, and all you do, he says, is kill them. Um, This is 2337 at the end. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets, stoning. Um, How can you do this? Um, He laments. Um, What I'd like to do at the end is I just would like to touch on... um, some of the major themes again that, that we've talked about because I want to get to a, um, a question that I want to leave with you guys. 
major themes. He, he, he begins his ministry by calling everybody to repentance. He's following John saying repent. Um, he, he says in 6.22, if the eye is not sound, pluck it out. If the eye is not sound, I want to go a step farther. If the eye is not sound, how do we read well? How do we see well? What's been an issue in almost every episode we've read, every event that takes place, is the Pharisees do not see the world as it is. God is right in front of them doing all these amazing things, and all they can do is be negative. They're negative again and again and again. All they do is see bad. There's a good going on in front of them. Does that mean Christ can't condemn or there isn't something to condemn? No, there isn't. But these men, these men are so blind... Um, and they live so much by these self-righteous traditions that they can't see a good going on in front of them. In 11, chapter 11, verse 20, he upbraids the cities. He's taking task with the cities and saying some of the other cities will be better off than Jerusalem. So he's not just condemning individuals or calling individuals to task or asking people to grow in faith. He's also looking at cities and seeing that cities themselves can become bad. We saw that in Pericles. Remember, Pericles has to go from city to city to city to learn to see what's going on because different cities present different seductions, different temptations. He says in 1238, um, we will be answerable for our words. It's not just our actions, the words we speak. We can be false by being too nice. We can be false by being too outraged. Um, do we follow Christ in our words? Um, the habit he meets constantly in his disciples and the Pharisees who are constantly asking for signs. We see human beings who want to bring God down to their control. They want proof. They want they want to be assured. Another better way to put it is they, they want to be justified. So they keep asking him to do things that will justify themselves. So instead of staying open in wonder or humility for what God is offering, they're constantly judging, closing things down. Um, asking for signs. I think I've stressed the absolute importance of Scripture, of, of reading the Bible. Are, so now, and I'm saying, you know that I've, I've not done this in our work on literature, but we're with Scripture. The whole point of Scripture was that God gave us something to help us with our salvation. And everything, so much of what Christ is doing is trying to help his disciples and us understand him, who he is, what he's doing, to see better, to understand better, to grow in wisdom. But he makes clear that understanding is not enough. We have to do these things. Are we doing what he asks? So understanding scripture is not enough. Do we read it with the understanding that we are asked to make the words real in our lives by what we do?
my last question. We were going to start John tonight, but I'm I'm not even going to I'm not even going to make a start. Um, do we read well? How well do we read? Are our hearts open? Do we read in wonder? Do we struggle to learn? Our traditions, our pride in the way. How open are we? Do we live what we read? Um, when we when we start next week on John, I'm going to quote a passage from Luke that I've, I've already reminded you about. Remember that each of the Gospels starts differently. In Luke, Luke will start in a very different way, but shortly, when Christ starts his ministry, it's a beautiful passage. This is the beginning of book four. When Christ starts his ministry, he goes to the temple. This is after the baptism and the temptations, so he's following Mark and Matthew. He's been baptized, he faces the temptations in the desert, and the first thing he does is he goes to the temple and he sits down. He's handed a scroll, you all know this, he reads, <clears throat> and then he says, in this day, this scripture is being fulfilled. So two things are happening, absolutely crucial to see. They're reading the word of God, which is living, God, I mean, Debbie's point earlier, I am the them. He is with them always. Are traditions getting in the way so we're reading traditions in the past, scripture, or are we reading, hearing God speaking to us now, alive? Is he right in front of us, speaking to us alive? So the amazing thing about that opening in Luke is that Christ sits down and says, in this moment, um, everything's coming to pass. In that moment, God's word, which is living, actually has a living embodiment in a human being in Christ. The word and God come together. Is that happening in our lives? Do we read scripture that way? Do we read scripture that way? Do we actually hear God speaking to us Christ living here now. Are we receiving it, living it, even when it means putting our own lives at risk, maybe even our families, our marriages, our jobs, whatever's going on in our lives. Are we living it? So let me just, those are some of the major themes running through Matthew. I've got one last question that I want to raise here because we're almost out of time, but to me it's a good one, so I want to come back to it. We've already done this, but let me do it again. You know that when those of you who were together here when we did Dostoevsky, that we did the um, Grand Inquisitor in which Ivan um, uses the Three Temptations as a central piece of that Grand Inquisitor scene. And he walks us through the Three Temptations, the devil saying, um, turn these stones into bread, jump off the temple, um, bow down and worship me. Every one of those is a temptation. One is saying, um, use whatever power you have to transform all these things to take care of physical needs, eating, food. Jump off the temple, God will save you. Bow down and worship me. Um, um, I will let you have power over all these things. So those three temptations, I'm going to say, <clears throat> are behind every single one of the episodes that we've read in the Gospel. 
that in facing those temptations, Christ is already showing us what he's going to have to face in the world and what we are going to have to face ourselves. Yeah? I mean, that's why he came. Do we understand that? Do we understand those temptations? Do we really understand the temptations do we face? Or like the Jews or the Pharisees, are we going through our lives, like Paul says, with a veil over us, going through the motions? So here's my question. Remember, first temptation, turn these stones into bread. And Christ says, no, um, man doesn't live by bread alone but by every word from the mouth of God. That we're not to let physical things in this world become more important than God. Whatever those physical things are. That's the first. The second is, devil says, jump off. The angels will save you. And Christ says, no, you don't tempt God. So he's saying, you don't tempt God. You don't presume on him. You don't try to test him. Don't tempt him. Third one, he takes him to the mountain and says, you can have all this. All you need to do is bow down and worship me. You have power over the world. Christ says, the only one you can worship is God. So every one of those temptations sets some temptation to the world against the place that God should have in our life. And everything that Christ is doing is to call us back from that. So here's my question. Can we find in those instances that we've been going through in in Matthew, instances of those temptations. Making physical things, particularly food, more important than God. Tempting God. Or wanting power more than, power and control, more than we want to stand trusting God. Can we look at the passages in in Matthew and, and see that those three temptations are work. Can we take them one at a time? Turn all these stones into bread. Christ says, man doesn't live by bread alone. He lives by the um, every word coming from the mouth of God. Can you find instances of that in, in the events that we've been looking at? Goodness. Francis, are you there? Can I... Do you have any thoughts on this? I don't know why my picture's in the way. What do I do with this? Um, Anybody else? We're thinking, Bob. (laughs) All of us are. All of us are. Fred, you have any thoughts on... I'm having a hard time hearing because there's some kind of vibration in the background. I hear you too, yeah. And it seems like about every other word gets blocked out by something. I'm not sure what it is, but I, I think you're asking, do we see the Sorry, can you mute? I, sorry, I turned the mute off to get rid of. Can you turn your? Uh, yeah. I I 
so I'm having a hard time hearing you because of, I don't know what it is, a yeah. background. Yep, yep. But I, I think what you're asking is, can we can we see the three temptations in in, in different ways throughout the, the book of Matthew? Every, every one, I'm saying in every one. And I, and I think, I think, yes, you, you can. Um, Fred, can you, you know, take the first one just to try to focus this? Uh, well, I... If so you can't first, take the other, go the, ahead. Sorry, go ahead. The first one is 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 the the bread or 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 the material things, and I think I I I kind of really think that if you look at the various Pharisee challenges to Christ, you know, throughout the book, uh, you know, most most of which took place in the last few weeks in in Jerusalem, I think probably you could point to you know each each one of those and I you know the one that comes to mind is you know when he's he's talking about you know those who who give at the temple and there are those who give all of what little they have versus those that the Pharisees were uh, guilty of you know if you know if, if, if you got a a thousand bucks and you give a dollar you know that's that's really kind of a sign that you're you're very materialistic in your in your beliefs where you know you have you know the, the widow or, or or the poor woman who who has two cents and she gives you know both of them right, uh, right. so right. for the materialistic part you know I would I would think that would be an example of where you're you're holding the the material things more important than the spiritual ones. Yeah, good. Any, Mark, did you have something to add? I don't. For the first one, uh, the only thing I can think of, and I could be very wrong here, but when he was talking to the Pharisees about what did why do your uh, disciples eat on you know eating the wheat on the Sabbath. And he's like, what? Did, and he brought back the, hey, what, what did David eat when he went to the temple? And it was, it was the law about the food is not that important. It's a, there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the only, I, that's the only one I can think because I can't think of. I don't think the loaves and the fishes a couple of times relate to this one, but that's I, all I, I can. Yeah, I wonder if they do sort of indirectly. I, it, but I, I agree with you. It's a, the other one that comes to my mind because it's by analogy with the Canaanite woman saying. You feed the. She wanted to make the word of God more important than any physical, whatever he would do physically. Um, any any anybody else? It's um, Judas chose wealth, material wealth, the feeding of the five thousand, the woman's crumbs, um, God's healing. But what about the tempting, tempting God? Anybody? Any thoughts about? My belief is that every one of the episodes um, will reflect something back, will throw a light on those temptations. That, and I think sometimes they're interconnected. That, you know, if, even if your concern is food, there will be some concern for power or wealth or, or anybody. Um, Fred, go ahead. I, to me, that, that kind of goes back to, and I, I guess I haven't really thought about it that much until you know, just tonight, but I, I kind of think maybe whenever whenever Christ refers to the Son of Man, he's referring to the humanity, you know, being fully human. 
and when he when he refers to the to the Holy Spirit or the Spirit, he's referring to his divinity. And when he talks about to the Pharisees, you know, challenging the Son of Man is one thing, but challenging the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. And to me, that is the point where you're you're literally challenging God. You're putting you're putting yourself in God's position, yep. and you're making a judgment. Yeah. And I think that's where we, you know, we're probably the worst at that. You know, whenever we, you know, we decide, well, the scripture says one thing, but it really means another. Or, you know, we're, we're constantly putting ourselves Go in, Go in God's position. Yeah, yeah. And to me, it, and I, I can't remember where it came up, but we talked about a, a wholly different perspective on the, on the first commandment. You know, uh, don't use God's name in vain, but in a sense, you you, you look at that and say it's it's really more than that. It's really don't yep. put your, your don't put yourself in God's position, right, right, and decide what you think God would do, right, right. Uh, you're you're totally clueless. You you don't have the the capacity to do that. And I think through you know throughout the book of Matthew, you see people putting themselves in in yep. God's place and yep. making judgments. The Pharisees. All the, the time, things yeah, were yeah, doing it all the yeah, time, yeah, constantly. So, to me, that's that's that one. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, it's hard for me to see what the Pharisees do over and over and over and over again. They're testing God. I mean, they they would like this guy to come in line with what they're doing, and you know, and it's God. Some other instances that came to my mind: um, the maidens with their oil lamps were tempting God. You know, they would keep, I mean, Father Flynn used to call this cheap grace. They would keep putting off things. They didn't exercise the self-restraint or the care that they should have because they were trusting God would take care of things. But finally, the, remember, the, the, the groom comes and they're not there. And, and when they come, he says, I don't know you. How, how often are we tempted to put off things because of we're preoccupation or we think... Um, God will forgive us or we keep putting things off, how often are we tempting him and presuming on him because we don't have the humility to give complete obedience to what he's asking? So we can look at lots of instances in the gospel in which people are tempting God. I, I think Fred's right on. All, all the Pharisees and the scribes almost can't breathe. Um, they can't do anything without tempting him. Um, Peter on the water may be an instant that's a curious scene. It's with Peter. It's you know it's a it's such a the, the women to me are presumptuous. They're just pushing their faith. I mean they're they've been entrusted with this, but they're going to keep doing what they do without worrying. Peter loves Christ, and he, he wants to <laughs> he wants to be with them. So I think when he steps out on the water, it might be a little. But I just offer that for your thought. What about power? The third, remember, um, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. You don't tempt God. The second temptation, the third one is, bow down and worship me, and, and you'll have power. I'll give you authority, power over all these things. Can you find instances in which what people are doing for the sake of power 
everything that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are trying to do. Yep. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You, you can throw a dart at this button and, and hit yeah, this right, 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 right. <laughs> And let me include in that generalization, because I'm not very fond of Mark's generalizations very often, but I think he's right on. Include in that the whole secular world, the Roman Jewish world. Given to power. I mean, the whole thing will reside in power between church and state. Pilate and Herod are going to be the representative of state powers. The state has this power to do this. They're They're going to crucify Christ. So the whole secular world and the whole established religious world is in some sense defined in terms of power. That's what makes Caiaphas do what he does, Harris, all the Jewish leaders, the, the, the chief priests, who are the ones most responsible for what happens involving Christ towards the end. Any other, any other examples? Um, the, the, uh, the, the mother of, the, the wife of Jebedee, when she says, I want my sons, the sons of Jebedee, to sit at the right hand. And, you know, she's, she's enamored of power and authority. She wants her, Christ over and over again says, stop being like the, you, only those who serve. Don't be like the other people who want to lord it over, who have the best seats and the, can afford the best meals and, you know. So when you go into a place, you are full of yourself. It's like the wedding guest, you know, because you want a seat of importance and power and prestige. And um, so she's a good example, I think. Um, the, maybe the man who takes the sword out to cut um, the soldier's ear off in the garden. Christ reprimands him and says, put your sword away. Those who live by the sword, die by it. I think that's going to come to a fine point at the end when Christ faces the power of Pilate and Herod. That's the, that's the power of the state. Christ will, Christ will go to his death on that power to answer it. And his final answer is, I mean, it's, it's a travesty. The whole, what happens at the end is a travesty. He's, nobody, I mean, that's what Dante makes so clear. If you look at his nature, nobody's more guilty. He's taking our human nature on. It's going to be crucified. It has to be. You look at his person, nobody's more innocent. What can he do at that point? He's answering the, the stupid ways in which we use power in the world. Um, let me stop. I, I, I just wanted to re-ask this question, revisit it, because we opened Matthew with those three temptations. And it seems to me if you, if you look at what Christ is doing as a, as a man-God in those temptations, you see that He's preparing himself to face every temptation we will face. I, I don't think there's anything beyond those. Those define our relationship with God. So we either learn to make God first in all we're doing in either, any of those areas, or we're giving in to those temptations. We're tempting God. We're giving into control and power. Um, we're putting our physical needs before him. Um, and all the way through Matthew, he keeps doing everything he can to help his disciples and all of us learn to see ourselves more truthfully when so often there's a lot that's not good that's important for us to see so we can stand better with him. Um, let me stop. Any last questions or comments before we leave?
a lot here. I'm so glad. So glad we did this. So glad we did this. Um, I wasn't planning on doing this, but I, you know, I was coming to the end of one of the later chapters in Matthew where the next section, I can't remember what chapter 20, 25, somewhere in there, where the opening ch chapter um, starts by referring to the book of David. And I had to resist a temptation in me to say to you guys, let's do the book of David. <laughs> <laughs> I had to, you can thank God for, for that. Anyway, um, you know, it's, it's just impossible. It's impossible to read a gospel and not find yourself taken back everywhere to Genesis and Kings and Samuel and, you know, the prophets and Isaiah and David and all of them. Anyway, I'm glad we're doing this. No questions? No comments or Pat, how are you finding this? You're a newcomer. This has got to be strange for you, I would think, or I don't know. Well, no, not totally strange. I've been following um, Formed, and so uh, they have the, all the readings, the gospel readings for that particular day, and they go into a little bit of explanation of it, which I find interesting. And, you know, they come up with a different perspective. So I enjoy that, and plus I like hearing what you have to say. Or hopefully what we all have to say here, what all of us. Well, some have been quiet, <laughs> yeah, like I, me. I'm, I'm trying to do everything I can to answer that. But. Have you ever listened to Brent Petrie? Yeah, I did. We listened to one of his tapes on the Eucharist or something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was really fine. There, there's um, a couple of tapes, one by Petrie and one by another person, I can't remember, that, that have to do with the Eucharist and the blood tradition, and I, I just thought they were really fine. Yeah, yeah I bought his book on uh, the Jewish roots of yep. the Eucharist, yep. and yep. that is fascinating. Yep. So, yeah. I mean, it's something you always want to learn, but it's, boy, oh boy, there's just so much you don't know. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, I I think the title of his lecture was the roots of the um, Jewish, roots. Jewish roots of the yeah. Eucharist. Yeah, it was so good to see. I you know I sometimes I when we're at church and I hear priests do homilies, I'm always always grateful when a priest pulls the readings together. I wish more priests felt a heavier obligation to do that to make mm -hmm. the connection because lots of times they don't, and I I just think if they don't we're missing something. The, the church puts those two things together. We need to look at them and say, why are they together? I mean, we should come out of every Mass going, what's the link? What's the church teaching us here? Um, mm -hmm. Because there is a link, and, and often it's not made. Um, so I particularly enjoyed that that lecture he, he, he gave. Yeah. And then I do the Word on Fire, too, with Bishop Barham, so he's pretty deep into the stuff, too. Yeah. So... Yeah, Suzanne. Suzanne reads those every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So okay. You always, you always have different points of view, though. Well, you, you know, you can have that nobody else saw. You can have different points of view and still hold the same truth. That's the beauty of it. it it's if truths start contradicting each other, you want to you want to take a closer look. But look, but people can give a different emphasis, 
you know, they can bring it, but if you're within the same truth holding to it, it just makes that truth richer. It fills it out. And that's a good thing, I think, yeah. for all of us. I agree. Um, okay. Debbie, it was um, good to see you. Um, Pat, it's good to see you again. Barbara, I hope your electricity comes back. I, I miss seeing you and calling on you. And I, and I know this, and you're going to... You're going to demure with this, but I, I know from what other people have said that that um, everybody misses you when you're not here to say something. Um, if anybody knows what's going on with Karen or particularly uh, Tracy, um, um, or if you're friends, let us know what's going on because... Excuse me, we haven't seen Tracy for a bit. I'm a little bit concerned. But anyway, next week we start the Gospel of John. And I let me introduce this with this. I was going to do it tonight, but we were, we are way past time. One of the interesting things about John for me, if you read Paul, this is, this is an amazing thing for me. I, I mean, I don't know what your thoughts on this are, but one of the amazing things for me about Paul is that he took immediate experience. There was no mediation. None. He took what was going on concretely. It's like literature. He took what was actually going on concretely with Christ in all of his um, doings, his teachings, his deeds, whatever he did. And um, this is not the right word. He reduced them to abstractions. He took them to principles. So like the reading this last weekend had to do with the body and parts. Paul was taking something that was not literary, it was an immediate experience, and transformed it into a theological principle. So he could help people see the principles of things. So they'd have principles to guide them as well as just concrete experiences. So we have the gospel and theologians. In a sense, he's the first theologian of the church by what he does. It's To me, it's remarkable. Who else did that? Could take an actual concrete experience and abstract from it to a principle. That takes a lot because most people live in their heads in principles. They, they we're just not rooted enough in concrete experiences. Paul did that. John did that. That's why the other three Gospels are called synoptic Gospels. They're, they're all related in sort of being descriptive narratives of what goes on with Christ. John brings a theological perspective to those same concrete things. So he brings a different cast to them. So when you read the opening of John, he's going to go, in the beginning was the Word. He doesn't say John baptized and Christ was born and Mary and Joseph did this. He's using a theological concept that he would have inherited from that Greek world I'm not sure where John and Paul were in relation to time, but he's bringing a, a depth of understanding to his presentation of the events in Christ's life. It's one of the reasons I wanted to do a synoptic in John because what John done is so different. So with John, we're going to be we're going to be asked to look at concrete experiences and also see that there's another level of meaning going on simultaneously at the same time. So we're being asked to hold two levels of meaning. The literal level, the we've gone through this with Dante, the, level, the literal and anagogical, the divine things, eternal things, simultaneously. 
that every concrete event, every individual specific concrete event is rooted in some way to an eternal reality. So when John presents the events in Christ's life, he's, he's bringing a very different perspective. It makes very different demands on us. And we have, I mean, we've been, you know, we have to learn to read each thing for what it is. We have to see what's there. So next week we'll start John and we'll be presented with a different kind of problem in reading the gospel. Okay, um, you guys all have a good week. You all stay you. safe. Okay, see you in a, see you in a week, I hope. Bye. Thank you, Bob. You're Bye. welcome. You're welcome. Thanks. I don't know. I don't get out of here. Oh dear. I got it, Doc.